These are burial sites and they're talking about building a recreation plantation, bike paths and lighting and all that sort of stuff. And they're just slipping it through. They're getting their African-American politicians to kind of be the face of this. But where are the impact studies? Where's the due diligence? Where are the public meetings with the, with the descendants? This week on Race Capital, we dive into the story of reclaiming East End Cemetery with Brian Palmer of Friends of East End. Brian joins me in an in-depth interview on his entry into uncovering archived Richmond Black history. With over 15,000 people buried in East End Cemetery, the space is at risk of becoming a new bike lane green space per the Enrichment Plan. The Enrichment Master Plan is lacking the critical preservation component that would ensure that the evidence of Black existence and resistance isn't buried underneath the gentrification that's to come. Tune in this week to hear how Enrichment Foundation has exploited the labor and efforts of the descendants of the East End Cemetery. This white-led nonprofit has now been given ownership of the land. They are the sole recipient of the $400,000 grant from the Virginia Outdoor Association and is now planning what we call the recreation plantation that includes construction but no preservation? Per usual, the nonprofit industrial complex has teamed up with black elected officials who have just lost the political will to fight, and yet, still, we rise. The resistance to our sacred spaces lives on through the persistence of the Friends of East End Cemetery. You are listening to Race Capital on the week of Wednesday, March 10th, 2021, with me, Kalia Harris. And me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. And me, Naomi Isaac. Let's get started with our Race Capital reframe, starting off with the eviction watch. This week in our eviction watch, there are 87 unlawful detainers on the books in Richmond. We say this all the time, but any amount of unlawful detainers are unacceptable, especially in a pandemic when sheltering in place is essential. Unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant from their homes. Other housing news, according to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the greater Richmond area has registered its largest single-year spike of homelessness in 2021 since the greater Richmond continuum of care first began tracking the crisis back in the 90s. With dramatic rises in housing making affordable housing harder than ever, those experiencing housing insecurity are being forced to spend longer periods of time exposed to violence in emergency shelters and or living with relatives. And Chelsea has really broken down the greater Richmond continuum of care on our past episodes, so be sure to tune into that. Well, y'all, in other local news, Mayor LaVar Stoney has presented his $770 million budget proposal to City Council last Thursday. VPM reports, the budget is about $18 million lighter than last year, and the city officials are, of course, blaming the pandemic, saying that lockdowns, quote, drove down revenue from taxes like admissions, meals, and lodging, end quote. We will certainly keep an eye on the city's budget proceedings as the fight to defund the police continues here in Richmond. 
And legislative news, Delegate David Reed's bill that would require five public colleges in Virginia, UVA, VCU, VMI, Longwood, and William & Mary to make, quote, reparations, end quote, for using enslaved people's labor to build their institutions, and they're currently awaiting the governor's signature. Roberto Roldan of VPM reports that the bill will, quote, begin the process of researching and memorializing the university's past use of enslaved labor. The schools would also be required to take action on the research using their own money, end quote find that a little interesting personally. I read a little bit of this article and it was saying that the bill's original language was to create scholarships for people who are descendants of the folks who worked on these campuses, but they found that that process was really messy because of the records management or lack thereof of keeping the records of the history. And I just, I find it interesting the way they're going about making reparations happen because there are still Black students on their campuses that are either graduating with debt like myself or that are still in school struggling to pay or dropping out. And so I just wonder if there are other ways to give money directly into the hands of students. I mean, to me, the only thing the bill does is research and study, which we know is just a prolonged step and not putting money in people's hands. And it's just going to give the universities more good press because, oh, now they're researching. I mean, we can check out George Mason for that case where they're actually building, it's wonderful work that's being done, where they're building a statue to honor the enslaved descendants of George Mason. In that process, there's a lot of good press that's going to Mason about this, but where's the money for us that are graduating with almost $100,000 in debt? So I just wonder what justice could really look like outside of symbolism. And we will hear later on in this episode with Brian Palmer, where he talks about the work of the descendants here in Richmond and how the same narrative of, well, it's too messy. There are too many. We can't track it. How these same narratives of excuses are these invisible or fake barriers to really engaging and paying back people that are owed. I'm also curious what that figure will look like, given that these schools have been operating for so many years. So, you know, if they try to propose some double digit thousand dollar reparations, I feel like that's still not enough to actually redistribute the massive wealth that these universities have made off the backs of enslaved labor. Continuing on, a spokesperson from Northam's administration says the governor, quote, welcomes an outside investigation into allegations involving the Virginia Parole Board, end quote. VPM's Ben Pavier reports, the allegations against current and former parole board chairs range from attempts to falsifying documents to altering the meeting minutes and forging impartiality in the release of Vincent Martin, a man convicted of killing an RPD officer in 1979. The findings were obtained by media and Republican lawmakers last week from a draft report written by Virginia Inspector General Michael Westfall. The spokesperson for the administration's says that they're discussing next steps with the investigation with legislators. So this is a really interesting talking point because it is Republicans that are making this argument right now in the General Assembly about the parole board. There is one particular case that they are talking about that we just named that the person was released and committed another crime when they were released. 
And the parole board still needs to be investigated for many other things. And because of the lack of oversight and just the overall parole findings right now is that Republicans aren't happy and they're making a loud noise to Northam and all of the legislators should be making noise. But unfortunately, it's now turned to politics. Y'all know what we say on race capital, free them all. Well, out of Culpeper County, the Virginia State Police are now investigating the murder of Donald Francis Hairston, a 44-year-old Black man who was shot to death by a Culpeper County Sheriff's deputy. The state police have said that Hairston shot a gun before he was fatally killed. A local pastor, Reverend Sledge, told the Washington Post that Hairston was a U.S. Army veteran who struggled with issues from his military service and that the police should have given more consideration to Donald's mental health and recognized the clear signs of PTSD and trauma. Well, in more news, Atasia Dye, or Tasia, a young Black woman here in the Richmond area, who was found deceased in her car a month after being reported missing at the end of January by her family. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Tasia's story went viral in Richmond after she was reported missing, as the community raised awareness and looking for her. We were all devastated to hear the news of what happened. Her mom, Cecilia, told the Richmond Times-Dispatch that, quote, she just wanted a fun-filled life and to be able to just live it at her best. She didn't deserve any of this to happen to her, end quote. Well, we definitely are sending our deepest condolences to Tasia's family. VCU announced that the institution is launching an independent review of Greek life. The VCU announcement says that the comprehensive review will, quote, propose new ways to ensure all organizations follow our values and how they will be held accountable when they do not, end quote. This news comes as Delta Chi's national office in VCU issued cease and desist orders over the weekend, which suspend the chapter's operations during the course of the investigation. The police investigation is said to determine whether or not, quote, Adam's death was related to Delta Chi activity, end quote. This is some real accountability running from the fraternity to the institution. I mean, somebody that has joined a Greek organization and gone through this to see that this is still happening and how VCU has handled this has just been really disappointing. So yeah, and Michael Rao made sure he took to Twitter to make this announcement so loud. And I think the student body has been pretty clear in what they want. It seems to be an abolition of Greek life on that campus. And so the demand is clear. It's up to the university to meet it. Well, y'all, moving into our national news, we'll start it off with our COVID watch. So this week in COVID-19, we mark a pretty big milestone, and that is the anniversary of the lockdown due to the deadly virus. Many of us were living what we termed normal at this time last year before the nation and the world changed with the spread and the mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic. In the United States, a year later, the national number has reached almost 30 million total cases and 540,574 total deaths. In Virginia, there have been over 588,000 total cases and our death count has reached 9,790. That's right, in a year, our one state has lost almost 10,000 people to the virus. As we reach this milestone, vaccine distribution is picking up across the country, including here in Virginia. Pre-registration for the vaccine is available on the Virginia Department of Health website. 
And while governors across the South and the Midwest continue to loosen COVID safety restrictions, the CDC director has expressed a high level of concern about a potential COVID surge over the next few weeks. According to the World Socialist website, CDC director Rachel Walensky stated, quote, the next two or three months could go in one of two directions. If things open up, if we're not really cautious, we could end up with a post-spring break surge the way we saw a post-Christmas surge. We could see much more disease. We could see much more death, end quote. The new, more infectious COVID strains that have come out of South Africa and Brazil have now dampened health experts and scientists' previous optimism about vaccinations. The CDC has recently reported that on-premises dining has a direct correlation to COVID-19 spikes. The data, which is presented in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, examined the connections between mask mandates and on-site dining on county-level COVID-19 cases and COVID-related deaths between December 31st, 2020 and March 1st, 2021. You may not be shocked to hear that the report found that on-premises dining was associated with an increase in daily cases 41 to 100 days after reopening. So not right away, 41 to 100 days after the reopening and an increase in daily death growth rates after 61 to 100 days. Meanwhile, state-issued mass mandates were found to be statistically significant in daily COVID-19 decreases and deaths within 20 days of the mandates being issued. What do y'all think about that? I think it's critically necessary for folks to hear this stuff, because I think especially right now, there's a lot of propaganda going on with business folks trying to get convince people that things are safe so that they can protect their own profits. And I think a lot of folks have convinced themselves that if they go to on-premise dining, for example, and, you know, it's at half capacity or even 30% capacity that they're still being safe. But we have to remember that a lot of the safety measures that are being implemented are still not the most effective for our health. They're just the most effective for businesses to be able to operate without completely obliterating their own staff. So I just think it's really necessary for folks to continue to do their own research about what is going on with the infection and ways to keep safe. Because let me tell you, these businesses and the government, they are not most concerned with keeping us safe at this moment, as we can obviously tell based on the numbers of of the spread and the deaths happening. And because everyone's ready to go outside. People are ready. They want to be lied to. So it's scary. Speaking of scary, weekly unemployment reports from February 21st to February 27th show that nearly 800,000 more workers have filed first-time jobless claims. Just to repeat, that we have 800,000 more workers that have filed for the first-time jobless claims. People are still being impacted. This represents a 9,000-figure increase from the previous week's report and nine times as many people claiming benefits when compared to this time last year. The number of state and federal claims has yet to decline since the start of the pandemic, with nearly 1.1 million people having filed for pandemic unemployment assistance during the last week of February. This comes as the Washington Times has published that small businesses in New Orleans are closing at a rate nearly double the national median, according to a report from the World Economic Forum. 
the total lack of financial assistance that we have during this time is crazy when you think about the fact that there are now folks who are reaching trillionaire status and that the richest folks in the world are making up to $30 million or have made up to $30 million just during this pandemic. And like, we can't even get 1400 Some people still aren't even qualifying for these benefits, even though they're filing for claims. And so just this, the massive need for support right now is incredible to look at. This piece about New Orleans is really interesting to me because when we think about disaster capitalism and the way that that has impacted that city where people have come and started these businesses and now they're forced to leave and neighborhoods have been gentrified and communities have been really impacted since Katrina and, you know, the millions of dollars that went into that city afterwards and so-called aid and capitalist benefit for white people mostly. Looking at that in conjunction with what Mark Lamont Hill calls Corona capitalism and seeing how those things are actually working side by side with one another to really create a small group of people that continue to profit, like you're saying, Naomi, as the rest of us are losing our jobs and begging for $1,400 from the government. If this is not radicalizing, I don't know what could be. Well, that's the point is that they're going to trick everyone into thinking this is why we have to open everything up because people need jobs. And it's this trap of capitalism of die to survive. (sighs) So a new study out of University of Massachusetts at Amherst that has found correlations between cities that held BLM protests and a decline in police killings. While the research has yet to be peer-reviewed, the data found strong correlations between municipalities that organize protests in defense of Black lives and police homicides. In fact, the research conducted by Travis Campbell links the presence of BLM protests in certain localities to as much as a 20% decrease in killings by police from 2014 to 2019, which translates to an estimated 300 fewer deaths by police violence nationwide. So... Keep your butts in the streets. And the interesting part about this study is that the number could be significantly higher. It's it's hard because there's no national database to track these killings so that, you know, it's really hard for them to piece together necessarily all of the linkages and the impact of our protest movements. But you should assume that it's much higher. When people ask the why, it's to save lives at the end of the day. It's in defense of Black lives. In California, the Oakland police have unanimously decided to end police involvement and non-crime-related calls, specifically ones that concern mental health. Look at that. Residents in Oakland have been demanding an end to police dispatches for mental health crises for years, but it took the global uprising last summer against police killings for these demands to be met. I'm noticing a pattern. Anyway, according to the East Bay Times, quote, in the summer of 2019, the Oakland City Council authorized paying the Urban Strategies Council $40,000 to come up with a feasible analysis of creating a non-police response team model, such as the crisis assistance helping out on the streets, also known as CAHOOTS, program that the city Eugene, Oregon, has successfully operated for three decades, end quote. The Oakland City Council has recently suggested utilizing counselors, paramedics, and the fire department instead of cops when community members are in need of crisis intervention. 
So guess what, Richmond? The Richmond City Council and Richmond administration has heard about this CAHOOTS program now for years. So as the Civilian Review Board that has their very first meeting next week, they should be hearing for us that we want this type of model that is non-police interactions, that has a proven success record, and is now the new way to ensure there's safety and mental health and crises response, even when people aren't necessarily identified as having a mental health crisis, right, y'all? This is just an opportunity for people that are in need of help just to get that without having to be in contact with the police. Just put that on everyone's mind. Unanimously decided. That's possible. I actually had a question. Oakland's where uh, Rodney King was first... um... Yes. So I I think it's interesting to see like, you know, one of the genesis of like the modern Black Lives Matter movement to see this type of progress coming out of that city is really it's enlightening. It's uh, it's heartwarming that, you know, we can take some steps and we're finally getting to see some type of progress, something that's actually tangibly going to change the conditions of disabled uh, and mentally ill folks. Naomi, thanks for bringing that up because it's not just within the mental health. Oakland and LA and these communities in California have created people's budgets. They've taken cops out of schools. It is an entire movement to get police out and shrink the scope of policing. So this was just another example of how their narrative is being pushed all over that community after decades decades of work in California. So we got some work to do, y'all. Abolition is a long-term strategy. So to just stay invested, y'all. Well, y'all, Joe Biden, or 45.5, has promised to, quote, reinvigorate funding for the Department of Justice's Community-Oriented Policing Services Office, end quote, known as COPS, with a $300 million investment and putting new community policing officers on the streets. The COPS office was established by the 1994 Crime Bill to provide federal grants to support training and hiring for local community policing efforts. Despite mounting evidence of the ineffectiveness of community policing on violent crime rates, the office has now funded more than $16 billion for the community policing initiatives of state and local law enforcement agencies. $16 billion. Well, just let everyone know, last year, Virginia got a lot of that money. Chesterfield got a lot of that money. Northern Virginia got a lot of that money. Um, This is something that Rise for Youth has been watching. I remember I got the email from Valerie Slater about this money coming in. And this is another avenue that is not in the Virginia budget because it's federal money, but it is still impacting the policing on our people. So remember, as we are looking at police budgets, that it's not just the county, the state, but we have to also look at these federal money. While we're talking about 45, the FBI has arrested former Trump State Department aide Federico Klein for his participation in the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6. Klein has been charged with assaulting police, unlawful entry, violent and disorderly conduct, and obstructing Congress and law enforcement. The offenses could land Klein a maximum of 20 years in prison. The FBI affidavit revealed that, quote, Multiple open source videos captured Klein inciting the mob and trying to break through the police line, end quote. In one video, Klein was recorded calling out to the mob on multiple occasions, quote, we need fresh people, end quote. 
Are we surprised? Hell no, I'm not surprised. I just want to point out that screaming out, we need fresh people to an angry mob should horrify everyone. In other national news, in Atlanta, residents are now calling on those with power to close the Atlanta City Detention Center, which primarily cages people for traffic violations, failures to pay a ticket, disorderly conduct, sex work, and shoplifting. Community organizers have taken several steps to chart a path toward closing the detention center, including establishing the Atlanta slash Fulton County Pre-Arrest Initiative, which works to reduce arrest and incarceration of people experiencing extreme poverty, substance abuse, or mental health concerns, and connect them with support services. Last fall, the Vera Institute of Justice met with residents, service providers, and other stakeholders to develop strategies that would minimize the city's reliance on arrests and detentions, and reduce the number of imprisoned people at ACDC to zero in as little as three months, y'all. A new report released by the Vera Institute presents five policy changes that the city can adopt immediately to reduce incarceration and close the jail for good. Go ahead, Atlanta. It's possible. Free them all. In Florida, lawmakers in the state Senate moved forward with a proposal that would require Florida school districts to receive written consent before releasing students' grades to law enforcement. Currently, the Pasco County School District releases children's grades, attendance, disciplinary histories with the Pasco Sheriff's Office, where that information is then used to predict which students will become future criminals. Though law enforcement claims they use this data to offer mentoring and resources to students. Although parents and teachers alike are demanding changes to this program, in a statement from the Pasco Sheriff's Office issued last Friday, a spokeswoman stated that the amendment proposed by the Florida Senate would have, quote, no bearing, end quote, on agency operations considering that the Sheriff's Office is allowed by federal law to access student grades. What in the world? They're using predictive policing against the students. They got predictive policing for kids based on their grades, on their attendance. What the hell? In a pandemic, and it's federally allowed. I'm just, if this is federal law, is this happening in Virginia is what my question is. I mean, if this is a just literally legislation for the school to prison pipeline i don't know what else is i have nothing but questions it has come to light that texas power grid operator ericot continued to charge texans outrageous high emergency prices for longer than necessary during last month's winter storm resulting in almost 16 billion dollars in overcharges reportedly ericot increased their prices to the highest levels legally allowed in response to the power grid crisis. According to a letter submitted to the Public Utility Commission of Texas, Ericot allowed their prices to remain the $9,000 per megawatt hour cap for nearly 32 hours longer than necessary. When was it ever necessary? (laughs) That's what I want to know. During a climate crisis, that's that's what we're doing is we're charging people. Yeah, I feel as though a lot of Americans haven't really seen the way that capitalism is going to operate because the climate crisis in its final state hasn't really hit, hit us and we haven't been like deeply impacted the way that a lot of other folks in our global community have been. But like, expect this, like watch out for your dominion, watch out for all these very large utility companies and the way they're operating now, because it will be very similar to ERCOT. 
and we said this last week, we absolutely would expect Dominion to do this. Just like right now, Dominion ain't getting covered with no CARES Act money. Everyone's on payment plans. Why would this be any different here in Richmond or the Mid-Atlantic? Because Dominion owns all that. Not to mention, they already have overcharged the ratepayers and they have not paid not a single dime of reparations to any of us. And like you said, I was just asking my Twitter followers just a week or so ago if there were any resources available to folks that are not able to pay their electricity bills. And it was crickets on the Google search and in the replies because there's no readily available information about anything that Dominion is doing to help us during this crisis, even after they overcharged us. In a capitalist society, every climate catastrophe is an opportunity. Moving into international news, the U.S. and Mexico are continuing their legacy of migrant exploitation. Recently, President Andres Manuel López Obrador proposed implementing a modified version of the World War II era Brasero program, which would allow Mexican migrants to work in the United States without full labor rights. In 1942, Democrats and the Mexican government collaborated to allow employers to strip Mexican laborers of their rights. Migrant workers helped build up million-dollar agribusiness companies while being subjected to horrific conditions. According to Left Voice International, quote, some 5 million agricultural workers entered the U.S. Southwest with temporary work permits, helping build up these companies. But as soon as their contracts ended, hundreds of thousands of them were persecuted, criminalized, deported, and humiliated, end quote. I always need people to be more critical of the nations that surround the U.S. People like to sensationalize them or, you know, think that they're innocent in a lot of the atrocity that's just happening when it comes to my immigration and migrant working. But they are like directly hand in hand working side by side to collaborate with U.S. political capitalists. And just here in Virginia, our legislature just failed to pass the farm workers bill that would have allowed those workers to even get minimum wage at 725. So they're just continuing this Jim Crow era law and now utilizing it on folks that need access to, to minimum wage. Vice News has released information from a leaked indictment about the links that the Honduran president went to in order to control the local press. The documents also alleged another corruption case involving $5 million that was reportedly funneled from the president's office to front companies for journalists and political elites. Corruption everywhere. Yeah, and we have to understand how the U.S. is involved in Central American politics, especially in countries like Honduras, where their government has far-right leanings. And what are they doing but killing off journalists, silencing them, and getting away with it? And that's how we're operating domestically. Folks don't even know that the American government has one of the worst standards for freedom of press. They just get away because it's not as overt as you're basically speaking to, Kalia. You know, they're not participating in like funneling money to kill journalists domestically, but they're they're still imprisoning people, keeping them locked up for like extremely unnecessary lengths of time for just telling the truth. And so this is like their international strategy to keep themselves at the top and create propaganda. 
Last Monday, the United Nations held a donor conference with hopes of raising $3.85 billion with the help of 100 nations to end the widespread hunger crisis taking place in Yemen. Unsurprisingly, they fell terribly short of their goal, raising only $1.7 billion, which is $1 billion less than what was donated back in 2019. Malnutrition is at an all-time high in Yemen. With over 400,000 Yemeni children currently at risk of death from starvation, they got 100 nations together. How many billionaires would it take to cover this? Also, all these nations are complicit in the starvation of Yemeni people. They are the ones who are actively supplying the weapons to Saudi Arabia. They're the ones. How they don't got the money to... This is reparations that are owed. And they're talking about a fundraiser, like a little gala, basically. Like, give them all the money. And really tried to get the accolades for, for putting on this event. The UN just does this where we act like it's the, not the world superpowers that are responsible for all of this devastation that we have. And then they're like, oh, we're going to put on this gala and put on our human rights philanthropy hat for a second. We're not falling for it. Y'all have the money. Defund the militaries. Free up the borders. Let's see it. And that was part of the conversation is that, you know, the U.S. offered like a significantly low amount of money compared to the defense budget that is directly complicit in this crisis that Yemeni people are facing. And they're trying to act like they couldn't even match their defense budget, you know, to, to continue their show. You know, it reminds me a lot of the interview that we will hear today about the oppressors who are the cause for the reason of defunding spaces and people leaving starvation, depression, and then coming together for a pat on the back for cleaning up what they say or reinvesting of what they say. Charity is what they say. When again, they are the reason that places and people are not able to thrive. And so this continued narrative of what's happening in Yemen and what's happening here locally, it's a recreation of, of keeping some people at the bottom and some people at the top and maintaining capitalism. Well, on Monday, there was a call to action in Senegal for three days of protest following days of clashes between police and the supporters of the opposition movement in the country. In the capital, Dakar, the movement for the defense of democracy, which includes leaders of the opposition party, urged people to, quote, massively descend onto the streets, end quote. The call to action occurred after the Senegalese prime minister, Diome, condemned so-called looting and damage to property during the clashes with police, describing it as acts of terrorism. Some of the residents are fed up with the COVID curfews and the president who has been in office since 2012. Power to our people that are across the water standing up to the police. We need to understand that this is happening in our motherland as well. Africans are rising all across the globe. In Cuba, Biotech engineers are close to finishing the development of a new COVID-19 vaccine. The nation is seeking to fill the vaccination gaps that have emerged after wealthy nations bought up over 50% of the world's most promising vaccines, despite the fact that these countries represent only 14% of the global population. According to Left Voice International, the Cuban objective is to produce nearly 100 million doses of their vaccine in 2021 and to immunize its entire 
entire population by the end of the year. If Cuba follows historical trends of sharing their medicines, we can expect that these vaccines will also be distributed to impoverished people around the world, particularly in what is considered the global south. And that is all for this week's Reframe. You are listening to Race Capital. Stay tuned for Reclamation East End, a conversation with our hosts, Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Brian Palmer of Friends of East End. You're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned for more with Race Capital. This week, we are excited to have Brian Palmer of Friends of East End with us here on Race Capital. Thanks so much for being here, Brian. I am happy to be here, Chelsea. Thank you for inviting me. So Brian, um, who is a photojournalist, overall storyteller, a Peabody winner. Tell everybody, what is a Peabody? A Peabody is an award granted by the University of Georgia. It grew out of their journalism department, and it is for... Uh, broadcast stories. I and um, a gentleman named Seth Fried Wessler and Esther Kaplan won a Peabody in 2018 for our story on public funding for Confederate monuments across the South. And that particular award and your work in the funding around Confederates directly ties into the story of the battle here locally with uh, cemeteries. First off, uh, what were you doing before you came to Richmond? Before I came to Richmond, I lived in New York, Brooklyn, New York, and I was a freelance journalist. I'd been a staffer. I'd, 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 I'd worked for uh, CNN. I'd worked for U.S. News and World Report. I'd worked for Fortune magazine, and I uh, went freelance in 2002 and was just traveling all over the place, Iraq, Burma, Kuwait, Vietnam, and that's kind of what I did in addition to doing local stories, uh, US stories on race and uh, a lot of military stories. And then I came to Virginia and that was, it's kind of a wild story because my life took a 180 after my dad died in April, 2011. And this can be a complicated story, but I can make it really simple. As we were going through my dad's belongings, he passed away in April, 2011. My wife, Erin, found a picture of him, a total of nine old black people behind a handmade like cement headstone. Matthew Palmer was the name kind of handwritten into the concrete. So I realized I recognized the name. That was my great grandfather, knew nothing about that person. I didn't to be honest, I didn't really care that much at that time. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. But what I knew for real was where they were. So for all of my life growing up in New York and then New Jersey, my dad had talked about his childhood in Virginia and how he and his family had been thrown off their land that they'd had for a couple of generations in order for the Navy to build a base called Camp Perry. So it's right out, right to the north of Williamsburg. Dad telling these stories for years and years and years. He dies, I realize where they are. They're at Camp Perry, which used to be land owned by all these people. But the thing I knew about Camp Perry 
is that that's where there's a secret CIA base. That's where the farm is. So, so I figured, let me go to this base. I have an excuse. If my dad was able to go, I can go because mm -hmm. we had a blood connection to someone buried on that property. Right. So that property is a tiny cemetery clearing in the woods. Uh, you can see maybe a few more than a dozen graves, but this is the black burial ground for a larger community of black folks and a few white folks. Mm -hmm. So you had 10,000 acres. The Navy took that for a Naval training base in the early fifties, the CIA kind of snuck in. So we get there in 2012, it took, had to jump through a few hoops to get there. And here I am this clearing in the woods. I see some headstones. I see some depressions in the ground. It's not very impressive, not very well maintained. Mm -hmm. uh, the public affairs officer said, well, we raked in the night before, you know, they, so the military personnel came out and they raked it, but depressions, you know, the, the fence around it was falling down. Inexplicably, they took us across the base to another cemetery, which was, you know, was very nice. And there was a church standing, had a nice fresh coat of, looked like a fresh coat of whitewash. And then behind that church in that cemetery, there was a grave of the unknown Confederate soldier. So of course we all realized, oh, this is the community's white church. Hmm. White folks were the minority in that church. Of course, in this segregated community, they had most of the money mm -hmm. and their church was saved. Right. There were two black churches there. They're my, my family's church, Mount Gilead and another Oak Grove Baptist. My family's church was allowed to rot and then bulldozed in the 60s. Oak Grove, I think, was bulldozed either around the same time or sooner. Mm -hmm. So here we are in 2012 on a United States military installation. We have the celebration of the Confederacy. We have this Confederate connected, white community connected church, again, on a United States military installation. The grounds are being tended by US military personnel. The black church, it's not even an afterthought. So here I am coming down from the North. I was there with my relatives. Some of them were as pissed off as I was. Others were like, this is how it goes in the South, but it still sucks. And, but, but beyond that anger, beyond that seeing the Confederate stuff, I, I lightly touched Matt Palmer's headstone. And that was it. Mm -hmm. So a 180, I thought, hold on a second. In the middle of this US military installation, I found a piece of my history and a piece of American history. Right. We started doing the research. Matt Palmer was an enslaved person. Matt Palmer served with the United States Colored Troops. Matt Palmer's wife, Julia Fox Palmer, born into slavery with her family, walked away, escaped, self-emancipated. They came across the York River wound up in a government camp and grew food on a government camp, government farm for United States soldiers and other self-emancipated slaves. Matt Palmer got up out of Goochland, came east somewhere in Henrico and Richmond, enrolled in the United States colored troops. My life changed, Chelsea. You know, I had studied African-American history a little bit, but this was, this was us, this was me, this was America. And I saw the context. They were Jim Crowing up this beautiful history. And I realized, oh, so that's how it works. You brought up the Confederate monuments, millions of dollars in, in the state of Virginia alone, 
millions of dollars, public dollars, state money spent to subsidize Confederate cemeteries, public and private, money given to the United Daughters of the Confederacy to the sons of Confederate veterans. Mm -hmm. And how much of that went to state money went to African-American cemeteries during the same period, 1902 to 2018? Mm. Zero. Mm. Zero money. And then what happens after 2018? We can talk about that. Okay. But the point was that this, we see the monuments, right? So we know that that's white supremacy and Jim Crow embedded, embedded in our landscape. But we look at the cemeteries and we feel a lot of things. We see the tragedy. We, meet, we may even feel a little shame as black people thinking, how could we let this get that way? And then we realize, oh, right, this is structural. They mm. were starved of their resources and the community it served. Our people worked hard as individuals, through families, through churches, through mutual aid societies to keep that, to keep these burial grounds, not just East End, not just Evergreen, but thousands across the South to keep them going. Confederates got state money, they got help. Mm -hmm. We didn't get help and we got worse. Mm. We got fewer opportunities because of Jim Crow. We got dignity and humanity and opportunity crushed. So now, you will not believe what some people, white folks, come through the cemetery doing their driving thinking and saying to me, this happened probably the first year that we were working out there. The first full year was 2015. And someone said, you know, it's a shame that they can't take care of this place. Oh, they. They wow. were talking to a they at the time. Mm. And that was early on, so I didn't quite know what to say. I didn't know. How many millions of dollars? Nine million dollars. Across the nation? No, in Virginia. Woo! 1902 to 20, 2017, 2018, just in Virginia. And that's in, you know, that's in 2017 dollars. So we had to do some adjusting, but that's a whole heck load of money, right? So it sounds like to me, from someone that looks at budgets, that they structurally defunded our cemeteries. Correct. And that's just another way to bust up community, right? Exactly. And, and not know our story. So Brian, you mentioned your first year working over at Easton. Uh, quickly just tell us your entry there and, and a little bit about Easton. Our first visit to Easton and Evergreen, we didn't know the difference. We didn't know that there were two cemeteries. East End is about 16 acres. Evergreen is about 60-60. Evergreen founded in 1891. East End founded in 1897. People ask, well, well why, why, did, why did we need two different cemeteries? Well, because there were a lot of Black people to be buried in a time where Jim Crow followed people to the grave. So Evergreen opened, took a whole lot of folks. There was enough business to go around. So East End opened. Prominent African-Americans first tried to get it off the ground. It was called Greenwood but that never happened. So by 1897, the East End Cemetery Memorial Burial Association had got things going. And it, those two became two of the premier cemeteries in the, uh, for black people in the city of Richmond after Barton Heights and the cemeteries in the city had been closed down by white people. So first visit through the cemeteries, May, 2014. 
first visit knowing that East End was a separate place was December 13, 2014. Aaron and I were making a documentary. We had a hot shot cinematographer up from New York who was gonna shoot some video. We're gonna make this video about reclaiming history and my great grandparents. And then we're gonna go back to Brooklyn and we're gonna have our film festivals and our awards. And then we re resume our lives in Brooklyn. After my visit with my family members and my collaborator, wife, partner, Aaron Holloway Palmer to Camp Perry, we decided to make a documentary about trying to find the histories of Matt Palmer and Julia Fox Palmer and this community. This is the pivotal part that you just reminded me I did not pivot on, which was I was able to shoot video at the Secret Squirrel Camp Perry base twice, and then access was cut off. How do you make a documentary if you can't go to the black cemetery that's going to be at the that that is at the center of your documentary? Right. So Aaron and I just started to go to a lot of black cemeteries. And what we learned immediately was that these were outdoor archives of the black experience. We were looking for Palmers and Whitings and all of our relatives in archives, maybe having, you know, like 10%, 20% success finding documents. But when we wandered through the cemeteries, we'd find additional pieces because each of those headstones is a text. Mm -hmm. They're short texts, but they're records of someone's existence. So the first time Aaron and I went to East End, we got there early with our hot shot um, cinematographer who's like uh, splits his time between Tokyo and New York. So we was thinking, oh, we got this made. We were the first ones there. Well, not the first ones. The first ones were a group of white hunters. So men and one little boy, probably around 10, with guns. And they were shooting those guns in East End Cemetery. And it was almost entirely overgrown at that time. So there was a wall of foliage up to the road. And they were, they were hunting for deer. And when we asked them, who gave you permission to do this? We're like, uh, the landowners. So we told them, um, there, there's gonna be a group of Boy Scouts because that's why we were there. There's going to be a group of Boy Scouts helping to clean up the cemetery there in a few minutes. So you might want to pack up and go home. And they said, excuse me, but you want to get out of the road because we're going to be shooting in that direction. So they shot in that direction. Luckily, the Boy Scouts weren't there at that time. Henrico cops came. Cops promised to tell us what happened, the full story and everything. So while the Boy Scouts were setting up their shovels and loppers and stuff, Cops were chatting with these white hunter guys and then they drove out as a caravan. That was it. Right. They had promised to come back to talk to the concerned parents. We had a grandparent there. We had the scout, scout master, the old boys, the old buddies drove out together. So that was, that was our first introduction to that place. Wow. But I have to say that the tenor of the day after that nastiness, because I was just livid, it reminded me of going to that U.S. military base, you know, it's like the cops were, were treating us as the problem, mm. the Negro problem. And, and I was enraged. Aaron, right. in the meantime, had, you know, like the scouts, the parents were protecting them. They were in their van until we got the all clear. They were just kids. They got down to business. They started clearing vines. Aaron joined them immediately. Mm -hmm. Aaron got it immediately. 
she was pulling vines with these kids and they were discovering temporary markers and they were just, you know, it wasn't a huge day in terms of finding headstones or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But these were black young men, mm. boys. I can call them boys because they're 13, 14, recovering history, reclaiming history with their hands. Mm. Aaron got that. And I thought, oh, we're getting this great footage that much closer to our film festival award, all that crap. And a few days later, Aaron said, why don't we go back without the cinematographer and see if we can help? And I said, oh, okay. Hmm. And that is how we started reclaiming history with our hands. I am not gonna pretend that it was easy for me at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I was caught up in all that shame garbage. Hmm. I saw across the street, the Confederate cemetery, so nice, so well-tended and an hour cemetery. Mm -hmm. First of all, I thought, how could it get into this condition? Mm -hmm. And second thing I thought is, this is a tragedy that is so much bigger than me. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was just going on other people's faith for the first year. Right. Driving through, you didn't realize there were two separate cemeteries. Can you just give a, a quick picture of the two cemeteries for the listeners? So one drives along Stony Point Run and you go down... Uh, a curvy road called Evergreen Road. When we first rolled down that road in 2014, the road is sort of a narrow thoroughfare through uh, like a, a canyon of trees. So it's like, you know, not a very pretty forest on the right, not a very pretty forest on the left, but forest, you know, like scrubby forest, not not big old growth, majestic trees, but like spindly trees and green briar, uh, grape, uh, privet, just, just land that people had neglected. So you drive through and Aaron was spotting like what looked like headstones, you know, like out in, in that briary briarness. And she's got like raven, eyes more i'm a photographer but she picks up those little things better so we just thought that that was like the outlier section of evergreen and then you pass through these gates into evergreen cemetery and at that time the center section was fairly well maintained but the rest of it was of course in the same condition that east end was which was you know um second growth trees and just thickets of 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 briar and but patches of East End had been carved out up front. So you did pass like a little clearing. Um, I think the Bowser plot was probably pretty clear, the Rosa Bowser plot. Um, they had people who re regularly come to maintain it. But again, like that looked like an isolated patch when in fact, upwards of 15,000 people are buried in that 16 acres. Wow. Of East End alone. Wow. The estimates for Evergreen, it, it's got to be multiples of that because it's, uh, do the math, three times, 16 times three. I mean, it's it's a bigger place. What's been the purpose of Friends of East End and what are some of the, the struggles and battles that you all have had the last few years? The Friends of East End grew out of the informal effort to reclaim East End Cemetery, which was started in July 2013 by John Shuck and Veronica Davis. So they had actually been working over at Evergreen. There had been some kind of disagreement 
with the owner at the time, they moved their operation over to East End Cemetery. He didn't own that. So Aaron and I joined about a year and a half after they started up. And as different kind of uh, hardcore people joined up, we realized we want to formalize this. We want to turn this informal cleanup effort into a 501c3. So we did that in 2017 because we really thought that this was a place that is transformative. You pointed out that the owner of Evergreen did not also own East End. So that's why they were able to focus their operations there. So who owns East End land at that point? In, two th so in 2014, when we first got there, 2015, our first long year of working, we did the research. There was no owner. The, mm. the owner of record, the East End Cemetery Memorial Burial Association, they had let their incorporation lapse. Gotcha. So they, as of 1987, they were no longer the owners. I called the last surviving member of that group, mm -hmm. Dr. Earl Gray. He told me, I, I think the county has control of it now. I couldn't keep this place up because the descendants couldn't, couldn't pay for it. We had no perpetual care. I did the best I could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you call Henrico County, they're like, whoa, 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 we don't own it. So basically it was in, in limbo until the Enrichment Foundation, actually an LLC, a limited liability corporation that they started began behind the scenes to begin to acquire African-American cemeteries. I say behind the scenes because there was kind of a bait and switch that went on. The they that executed the acquisitions were the Enrichment Foundation whose executive directors set up an LLC in order to take ownership of these places. These acquisitions, particularly the Evergreen acquisition was subsidized by the Virginia Outdoors Foundation which is a state agency. So. We talked to the state agency people and actually enrichment had been our fiscal agent, but we didn't want anything to do with them at a certain point. The state came to the cemeteries late May, early June, 2016. So the executive director of the Virginia Outdoors Foundation and one of her lieutenants, I gave her a tour along with the African-American leader of the volunteer effort over at Evergreen. We were two different efforts. I was a member of the East End effort. I was not the leader, I was a member. And we gave the tour to these people. And they said, they said to us, we've got a $400,000 grant. We're interested in supporting the work of restoration here at, the, at East End and Evergreen Cemetery. The African-American head of this organization said to me, we want to get parity. That's a woman named Brett Glimpf. And this organization, one more time, is? The Virginia Outdoors Foundation. Okay. They got their charter from the General Assembly, so they are a state agency. She did mention green space, which you thought, well, oh, it's kind of interesting. It's a cemetery. But the emphasis was on supporting the restoration effort, talking about conservation easements, and achieving parity with Confederate cemeteries because our ancestors deserved that. That was the nature of the conversation I had with this African-American woman in 2016. Okay, and Brian, real fast, what is parity in cemeteries? What should that mean to someone? So in the, 
in the code of Virginia before 2017, there was an item, it's still there, which is disbursement of funds for Confederate graves and cemeteries. So when I first saw that, I thought, hold on a second. There's a separate item in the code of Virginia that gives money to Confederate cemeteries every year. It's still there, 10.1-2211 in the Virginia state code. So when I was talking to this individual, the original plan was to try and get that code change so that it wasn't just Confederates. And others had tried that. Others had tried to do that. Black legislators in the General Assembly had tried to get that legislation changed to historic cemeteries, civil wars, something that wasn't about Confederates. They couldn't do it. They still haven't done it. So what they did in 2017 was a create a kind of a Jim Crowish law, 10.1-22, 11.2. That's the historic African cemeteries and graves bill. So that was the bill designed to give parity, mm -hmm. separate but equal parity. And you know, there's a problem when we say separate but equal parity, you, 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 those words don't work too good together, right? Right, and so parity, and we talk a lot about disparity, right, with, with policing interactions for our audience, but parity in this manner would be ensuring that there are funds that are equally dispersed or even equitably dispersed amongst these cemeteries. And now what we are hearing is that there is a longstanding provision that provides funding for Confederates cemeteries. There is a new one for African-American cemeteries. But as we all know, watching policy, if they are separate, they will never be equal. And just as we have heard that they have defunded cemeteries in the past, there will be a restructural way to continue to defund in the future if we are not careful and why the separate but equal does not work. So you all have this conversation. They promise the parity is coming. Then what happens? Why well, you got to be reading ahead in the book? <laughs> it's funny, Brian, because it's like our ancestors have already written this book to tell us what happens, right? Like if we read the books of the sister that's behind you that many of our listeners can't see, but Ida B. Wells, right? If we are listening to the stories, then we can understand what is in the future. But go ahead. Three words. We were played. So this original proposal for, well, first it was equity. Equity would mean rewriting the law. That wasn't possible. Mm -hmm. So the next step was going to be parity, that we get equal payment, equal treatment, equal everything. Okay, whatever. Um, that would have been nice. But the initial issue was $400,000 grant for cemetery restoration. One document is created and presented. The document says that the, the state agency is going to be committing a certain number of funds and its institutional heft to make this project go. It names a number of partners, Friends of East End, Friends of Evergreen, City of Richmond, Henrico County, others, and a major partner, the Enrichment Foundation. So the major partner thing was new to us, but it didn't name a recipient to the grant and it didn't specify what the divisions of labor were. We just assumed at this time, because of the structure of this document, and because what had been said to us is that partners, stakeholders will come together and we will create a solution for this problem and we will fix these cemeteries. So what they wanted to do, what the state agency asked us to do, because enrichment is not in the picture yet. 
they're a name on a document. We are asked to get letters of support for descendants for this $400,000 grant so we can get it past their board of trustees. The Virginia Outdoors Foundation has a board of trustees, state agency, but they still have these people that are appointed. So we get behind that. My mom even writes a letter. They pass the $400,000 grant. And then all of a sudden, it's no longer about partners. It's about all that $400,000 is going to go to one entity. But even worse, we began to realize that along with that money would be the ownership of the cemeteries. And if you think about it, it is both mystifying, reprehensible, and crazy that the state was secretly committing to transfer 76 acres of sacred African-American ground to a white-led organization that didn't have the money, didn't have the capacity, the organizational capacity, and had no cemetery preservation expertise at all. They may have been the fiscal agent for some friends of this and friends of that, but in terms of operational experience, no. You wanna talk about due diligence? We've been trying to get public records for years. Apparently there's no due diligence. This was a deal done in back rooms. They lined up some politicians to support it. They fueled it up and now they're just blasting it ahead like a freight train. But again, no due diligence. And as of today, what is it? March 8th, 2021. Enrichment has owned Evergreen since 2017. There is no preservation plan, no preservation plan for a fragile historic site. No preservation plan. There's an engineering plan, which has construction in it, talking about sewage, talking about a promenade, talk about a $1.9 million visitor center. Henrico County gave them half an acre for that. Just gave it to them, gave it to them. Enrichment was able to CYA by creating an advisory board. There are a lot of good people on that board. I have friends on that board. The problem isn't the people, the problem is the structure. When I was approached about creating a similar board for East End, I told the enrichment representative, the way you have it structured, I would never join. Because you say in the last clause, that enrichment can, can, can dissolve this board whenever they want. So it's an advisory board, they have no decision power and you can dissolve them. And guess what? That board doesn't exist anymore. They're creating a new one so that they can consolidate more power. How is that parity? How is that equity? How is that even ethical or humane? These are burial sites, and they're talking about building a recreation plantation, bike paths and lighting and all that sort of stuff. And they're just slipping it through. They're getting their African-American politicians to kind of be the face of this. But where are the impact studies? Where's the due diligence? Where are the public meetings with the, with the descendants? Even in your story, that all the things that enrichment did not have that would make them the appropriate people to own this land and oversee this work is that they also did not have the connection with the descendants as when the grant was coming through, 
they've reached out to you all to make that connection, right? And so you are literally gathering all of the information, doing that labor to get together a grant for then Enrichment to come and be the overseer. So what's the history of Enrichment? Enrichment goes back to, it was the Parks and Recreation Foundation be, uh, before the name changed to Enrichment. I think that that it's been Enrichment for, for more than a decade now, but before that they were a quasi-public uh, fund within the Department of Parks and Recreation. And then they became a 501c3 that is not a governmental agency. So if you want to, we can't file public records requests to them because they're not a government agency. When we file public records requests, we have to go to the city, the state, and the federal government because there's been some assistance from the feds as well in the form of AmeriCorps groups, roughly a quarter of a million just for one AmeriCorps team uh, in 2018. What led friends of the cemeteries to be working with enrichment in the first place? We weren't. Then, oh, okay. We were not. How was enrichment involved in, in these cemeteries at all? When did they kind of get in play in the cemeteries? Your guess is as good as mine, but what, what we know is that like the Friends of Shaco Hill, like uh, several dozen other non-501c3s who wanted to take donations, we needed a fiscal agent. The Enrichment Foundation was there. That was their main line of business. Fiscal agent means that they're a 501c3 they have uh, IRS tax exempt status. So if someone wants to give to a mom and pop community garden and they want that donation to be tax deductible, you write the check to the fiscal agent, they take their cut, and then you get the other 90, 94, 95%. That, you're not connected to that organization. You're not a subsidiary. They have no operational control. So. Enrichment had no operational presence at East End or Evergreen during the entire time that the Friends of East End were operating and probably before. And we have people again who were at East End in 2013 and who were at Evergreen before that for years. So maybe some enrichment people came out and did this and did that. But in terms of an operational presence, the people reclaiming East End were the Friends of East right. End Cemetery Inc. We were the ones that over a period of seven years organized 10,000 volunteer visits to clear most of the land of that place that was used for burying. We did that work. Mm. The labor. We did the, the boots on the ground, hands in the dirt work with and so our partners, with all these other community people from VCU, VUU, UR, churches, masjids, synagogues, you name it, they were out there. And so you all were organizing these efforts for years to maintain the land, clear the land, do the labor of it. And yes, there may have been a fiscal sponsor presence, but as you just explained, that doesn't mean anything for the actual outcome of what was being done. And then all of a sudden, when there is grant money and opportunity that shows up, $400,000 plus worth, this body that was a fiscal sponsor now is suddenly has ownership, decision-making powers and access to the money instead of the people that have been devoting their time, their labor and their energy. Those folks were overlooked in order to give right. all of this power authority money to enrichment. And, and to be clear, Chelsea, the Friends of East End never said we want to own a cemetery. 
the deal that we were presented with, the story that the state presented us to uh, presented to us was that this is going to be a collaboration. It's going it takes a it takes a village to save a cemetery, and that's why when they wrote that one public document, they said city of Richmond, county of Henrico, other partners. That's why we thought this was going to be a, a public-private effort. We were going to be recognized for our on-the-ground expertise, and other entities were going to come in. We would have the state through VOF. We would have the county and the city behind us. We'd be a team. We were never contending for ownership. That would be silly. But the idea that everybody else but the anointed son would be charged with reclaiming the cemetery. And then that son was able to just kick everybody else out. We know now after filing all these public records requests that conversations about the future of Evergreen Cemetery were happening before the idea was even floated by us. So there was an idea to turn these places into urban green spaces, parks basically, yeah, we'll do some memorial stuff and maybe we'll take care of Maggie Walker and John Mitchell, that small portion. But basically, we got dozens and dozens of underutilized land in the East End that we can integrate into the Richmond 300 master plan and we can bring in all those new residents with their shiny new mountain bikes just waiting to tear it up on these new trails we're gonna cut through. We're gonna spend millions remediating the streams John Sidner is already talking about and probably doing carbon trading for the trees on the property. All of this Chelsea with no preservation plan, with no recognition that this is a sacred site with tens of thousands of people in the ground, black people. Okay, so this is enraging, number one. Uh, number two, what happens now? Brian? A number of things. We are continuing to obtain or try to obtain public records. The main thing is me coming on talking to you, me talking to everybody, me talking to my descendant sisters, my descendant brothers and saying, listen, this isn't just going on at East End. This isn't just going on at Evergreen. We're talking to people who have concerns about cemeteries around the city of Richmond but we're talking to people who are dealing with the same stuff in Alabama, in North Carolina, in Georgia. Where else? Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina. Those are the main states. Oh, Maryland, dealing with African-American cemeteries. We're also talking to the people here in Virginia who have success stories. So for example, the preservers, the daughters of Zion Cemetery in Charlottesville, those are some powerful women Bernadette and Edwina have been working with Preservation Virginia, and they've been working with the city of Charlottesville, which has done some good stuff. They're a success story. We could look to them as, as a model for a public-private partnership. Did we? I don't think so. Right. So the point is, like, we, we, we have to alert people to what is happening. What I would say to you, Chelsea, is that folks can get a copy of Enrichment's master plan, which is on their website. It's 660 megabytes. We've compressed it so you can get a smaller version. And you look at that. You look at what they're planning to do. And then you talk to your public servants. You ask Cynthia Newbeal. You ask Dolores McQueen. You ask LeVar Stoney. You ask Tyrone Nelson. 
How is it that a $19 million plan that's going to remake over 70 acres of sacred historic ground without a plan other than a construction plan, without a plan to honor and preserve the final resting places of people who were neglected and who were, but who didn't just endure. What did they do, Chelsea? They thrived. Some right. folks were beat down, but this community thrived. How do we honor that? By building bike paths? I don't think so. So that's what people need to do. They need to educate, read the things that we've written in the free press and in other publications, talk about it in church, talk about it in youth group, talk about it in your community meetings, but basically talk to your public officials and ask them, when will you provide us the documentation that tells us that these deals are being cut in the public interest, right? In the public interest. I'm not just talking about descendants. I said before that these sites, I firmly believe are transformative. The stories dormant in the ground that Jim Crow covered up, they'll change things for black people, they'll change things for white people, Latinx people, they will change America. If we value them, we share them, we discuss them. This sacred ground is as important than any other site in the city of Richmond. We're talking about X million dollars for Monument Avenue, X million dollars for this or for that. Before we talk the millions, let's talk, you know, the 150,000 or $200,000, you need to do a plan for preservation, which brings in descendants. And there's, there are off the shelf rubrics that you, you, you just pull it off the shelf for descendant engagement pull it off the shelf and enact it. Brian, you bring up a point in my mind. Right now, I'm hearing a lot about championing Black history in Richmond and Jackson Ward. And it bothers me that we're not using that same value system with the places where these people are buried, literally where their remains are, those same hit heroes and leaders and people that organize that we may not know their names and are still heroes. That's where their remains are. And we're not able to honor them in the same way that we did in the, the structural places of property and land that really have no longer bearing tie to them. How, how do you respond to that? So I've had a few years to think about this. I am, first of all, I am not an organizer and I bow down to genuine community organizers, people who can build power in communities among constituencies so that regular people can get what they need. What I have noticed though, is that the solution to these issues is obvious but difficult. Obvious in the sense that you need to create a democratic process and you need to invite stakeholders in to discuss and to go through that messy process of deciding what's important prioritize how to do it. Or you can do it the way that we've seen, which is rather than genuine democracy, coming up with a top-down solution that's basically managing uh, 
you can do it the way that we've seen everywhere else, which is to do it in a top down kind of way that instead of having community engagement, you're having community management. So you have a group of politicians, generally speaking, white dudes who wanna control the narrative. They don't wanna put their privilege in question. They don't wanna point out how they haven't really brought people to the table in ways that might challenge their own power, which is the only, only path toward a solution because power is distributed in really messed up ways. So we have this attempt, these continued attempts to manage what happens at Shaco Bottom, to manage what happens at the cemeteries, to manage for us, for black folks. And of course you get some black folks at the table, but you can't make something democratic out of an anti-democratic process. So the hard stuff means sitting at the table with people who aren't normally at the table. That's it. Mm. And again, you know as well as I do that there are formulas out there James Madison, Montpelier, and their partner escaping me, but this engaging descendant communities rubric, which Anna Edwards pointed out to me, off the shelf. This is how we do it. There's a process out there. We can bring descendants to the table. You have to accept though, that they are genuine partners, that they're not people to be managed. They may have different experiences, different expertise. They may not have a PhD in urban planning or so on and so forth, but they've earned their right to be at the table because it's their people on the ground. They've watched what's happened at these cemeteries over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. Brian, what would you say to folks when they say, well, we can't find the descendants? Uh, the first thing I would say would be look. Mm. The second thing I would say would be listen. Mm. So we get it both ways. We've heard, well, we can't find the descendants. And then we hear there are too many descendants in order to have a decision-making committee. They're just too many. They're all gonna flood out of the woodwork. Well, which is it? So we've always said, we know a lot of descendants because they come up to us in the cemetery because we're there. That's how we meet people. Then we read the headstones. So we also know that not everybody has the time or the physical capability or the interest to do this work. But we know that we can bring descendants to the table. We have done that. We do it all the time. We're there. You have to like, like we can't do everything on the terms of the policymakers. Everything is just gonna, it's gonna be the same okie doke. Like, trust us. Mm -hmm. We're gonna put money in this in this enrichment thing with the VOF thing and every, just trust us, everything's gonna be fine. We'll create an advisory board. And then what do you get? You get a recreation plantation that doesn't honor our ancestors and some kind of source of grants and revenue, but not for the people in the community. And what you get by just taking the word and trusting politicians is a recreation of history that we've seen written so many times, right? Generally, on, on general principle, we should be holding people accountable both for what they've done and what they've said. So in a community meeting that we, the Friends of East End, sponsored June 27, 2017, the executive director of the Enrichment Foundation said something that he should be held to accountable now. He basically said that he's willing to open his book to anybody. And, and by the way, 
If anybody wants to see our books, they are wide open. We don't hide anything from anybody. As a matter of fact, when the East End group and the Ever, uh, Evergreen group were with Enrichment, they had access and they still would, but we can, we can actually do, we've done this for donors. We've set up accounts where we set up family members or people who are, are what they call, we call stakeholders, can go in and look at where the money goes. In terms of who we want to talk to, we need to talk to everybody from, uh, you know, Tim Kane and Mark Warner, but at a more local level, Delegate Dolores McQuinn, who sponsored HB 1547. We need to talk to Cynthia Newbeal. We need to talk to Tyrone Nelson. We need to talk to the board of the Enrichment Foundation. We need to talk to the people in the Parks and Rec Department. We need to talk to Mayor LeVar Stoney. We need to find out when we will be able to have a voice in this process, when we will be able to have a voice in the process taking the land in which our ancestors had been planted by their loved ones and turning it into something that is not in the public interest, is some kind of park. We all want parks, we all want green space, but you don't go from A, which is overgrown cemetery, to Q, which is urban green space with bike paths. If it's a sacred ground, you preserve, you protect, you establish a fund so that you can invest money and maintain the place. That's like ABCs, right? So we ask our public officials, are you sticking to the ABCs or are you trying to get advanced and slide your way through the entire alphabet all the way to the Qs and the Zs and the paydays? Because that's not gonna work for us because it's gonna destroy our sacred grounds. This is real, Chelsea. Hundreds of thousands of dollars that are racking up into millions. That's why we're not hearing about this. Exactly. Why we have to really have some questions answered about where money is going and who gets to decide about where the money is going. Brian, again, I, I thank you so much for your work, for Aaron's work, for the Friends of East End. And how can people continue to follow what you all are doing? We're on Instagram, Friends of East End. Uh, we are on Twitter, Friends of East End, eastendcemeteryrva.com is the website. We're partners with VCU and University of Richmond. If you go to the digital map, which you can reach through the University of Richmond's website, if you have relatives out there, if you're listening to Chelsea's show and you live in Michigan, you can go to the Digital Scholarship Lab website and find where your people are buried because we plotted them digitally on a map. That's great. Okay. Well, thank you again so much, Brian. And we will have to have you back to see how this goes. Uh, I want everyone to know that we also have to have Brian back just to tell us some of these stories that you have uncovered, right? I mean, that's honestly why I wanted to have you on the show for so long, but understanding now that those stories are at risk of, of never coming to light. Exactly. Thank you for saying that. Okay, well, thanks so much, Brian, and we'll, we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks, Chelsea. Well, that's all for Race Capital this week. As a reminder, Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. To support our work, you can become a patron of the show by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash race capital. As always, like, share, and subscribe on all your favorite podcasting apps.
solidarity to all those engaged in the struggle. And thank you for listening.